You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Welcome, TFC. It's such a grace of God to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Today we will finish the section that we have been looking at very closely as we have looked at Jesus' words about what it really means to follow him. In this section, we have been covering one thought or one verse per week. And by doing so, we've really been able to see with depth what our Lord is saying. With preaching, it will ebb and flow between taking longer narratives all in one week, taking longer narratives in smaller sections, taking certain passages all at once, taking sections one verse at a time, sometimes even taking a verse and breaking it up for multiple weeks, covering just a clause per sermon as the spirit leads or as the text requires. The benefit of, say, taking a verse or a clause is that we get to see very deeply the words, the clauses, the phrases, the sentences, the connecting links, the conjunctions, the flows of thought, and therefore see deep and wondrous things out of his word. We get to see how the passage fits together and how it connects the flow of the section or the train of thought and, of course, of the whole book. We get to truly see what the biblical writer had in mind and as each word that he wrote was inspired by God, which is really helpful for us as we attempt to grasp biblical text and as we grasp uh, the obedience that comes along with seeing these biblical texts. And all of this is always built upon the cross. It's always built upon the meta narrative of the whole Bible, which is the gospel. And notice whenever we do this, whenever we take time to really isolate sections in a very specific way, the Holy Spirit really uses it. He's used this section just as he did when when we slowed way down in the parable of the soils. So this section for us has been eternally profitable. And so today we will finish this particular section by covering the last two verses, verses 26 through 27. As Jesus here once again describes what it means to follow him. And as he describes once again what it means to follow him in deciding to follow him, we, have, we will see again today that he continues the thought that we must think eternally. In deciding to follow him, we must think eternally. And he continues the idea that we must be willing to suffer for him and his kingdom. We must be willing to suffer for him and his kingdom. This will be the evidence of saving faith. This will be the evidence of true belief in him as God's Christ and as the son of God, of true acknowledgement of one's need for the forgiveness that only Jesus offers and the necessity of that forgiveness, of the supreme desire to have God as your own, through Jesus. And this kind of following will result in eternal life and being accepted by God and entering into his kingdom. So my hope for today is that you would take up the biblical reality of following Jesus, that you would decide to follow him in such a way that results in eternal life with true belief in inheriting God for all of eternity as the result. And as we walk through this particular text, one prayer that I have just in the way that we conduct uh, looking at this text right now, the way in which we pay attention, I want to pray that the same thing would happen here that happened in Nehemiah chapter 8, that this would take place. I've been meditating on for a few days 
Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, as I spend my personal time with God each day. And I've been reading through the book of Nehemiah, and this has been so captivating for me that I haven't been able to move on for nearly a week. And it says this, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate. He just read from the book of the law, the word of God, from early morning until midday. And in the presence of men and women and all those who could understand it, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. This passage in Nehemiah has informed my prayers for myself as your preaching pastor. This passage has informed my prayers for you as the saints of the spiritual family. And this passage has informed my prayers for us specifically today as we expose verses 26 and 27 and continue on in the biblical idea of following Jesus. And so let's pray together. Let's pray that God would make us attentive as we read and as, and as we expose his word. Let's pray that he would give us understanding. And let's pray that he would make us biblical followers, true disciples of Jesus as described by his words here and what it really means to follow him and therefore resulting in eternal life. Let's pray that God would do this work and then we'll read. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, you would do your great work in us this morning. I pray, God, that you would have your way in us, that you would make us attentive to your word. That as we read your word, you would make clear to us the biblical prescription that you give Jesus and what it means to follow you. God, I pray that you would make us attentive, that we would understand, and that you would give us salvation. Even some of us who have never trusted in you today would trust in you for the first time. And those who, who claim to be following you, that they would look at your text and see if their following of you matches what you describe, Jesus. God, I pray that you would do a saving, an eternal, a deep work in all of us as we look at this section once again and close it out about your description, Jesus, and what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Today, we will identify one main point which illuminates the weight, the gravity, the importance of embracing the cost of choosing to have Jesus as your supreme desire. Or, saying it another way, this passage gives us the reality of what it means to choose this world and the avoidance of suffering over following Jesus. Jesus solidifies here once again that doing so is the evidence of a lack of true saving faith. And therefore, one must embrace Jesus supremely. Believe in him as God's Christ and as the son of God. Embrace their absolute need for forgiveness through Christ. And therefore, follow him supremely. If one is to have eternal life and to be accepted by God and to enter into his 
kingdom. So to simplify this, our one main point today is if you deny following Jesus supremely, God will deny you eternally. If you deny following Jesus supremely, God will deny you eternally. And this is the weighty reality that Jesus is speaking of here in verses 26 through 27. This is what Jesus is saying, and it's weighty. The whole section is weighty. So as we have established repeatedly over and over again, it has been settled. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed king, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is life and ministry, and therefore Luke's narrative thus far has established this. And now Jesus will spend the rest of his time teaching the disciples about what it means for him to be the Messiah, what the Christ must suffer to accomplish salvation for his people, and what then it means to follow him. Jesus has told his disciples that it means coming after him supremely. It means therefore denying self and one's propensity to protect against suffering. And it means taking up your own cross and dying to living for yourself. And it means replacing everything with him. This is the essence of saving faith. It means believing in him as the Christ, as the son of God, and therefore joyfully letting go of the world and embracing suffering and willfully following him in order to have him in his kingdom. It requires thinking eternally during this life, living for eternity and valuing more highly one's eternity with God than this life here and now. It requires following him supremely. This is true saving faith. This is what it takes to have him. This is the evidence of one's true belief in him as God's Christ, as the son of God. This is the evidence that one has believed the necessity and the sufficiency of his forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus offers. This is what it means to desire him supremely. And this belief is what will be required to have eternal life be embraced by God and enter into his kingdom. Jesus is describing here the essence of saving faith, what it really means to follow him. You can't trick him. You you can't keep him as a safety net for your eternity with the facade of belief in order to have a better life and have him as an eternal safety net while following Jesus in in your own way as a safety lever, maybe even that you keep real close so that you can pull it one day if life doesn't seem to have the prosperity that you envision as evidence of God's favor on your life. Therefore, maybe you'll need it and maybe you won't. You can't just say you're a Christian and just pursue the life that you've always wanted because then you'll have both eternal life and this life. And you can have eternity uh, and, and you can have your own life here on earth believing surely that maybe since you've, re- you've respected Jesus that, that you'll go to heaven because you kept him close. Simply put, Jesus is saying here, you can't follow Jesus. You can't follow him in a way that isn't described by Jesus as what it means to follow him. This is what he's saying. Simply put, you can't follow Jesus in a way that isn't described by Jesus as what it means to follow Jesus. And even more simply put, you must follow Jesus as described in the Bible, by the Bible, the text. Jesus is giving us the definition of what it really means to follow him and to believe in him. And if you don't, you don't believe If you don't follow his words in this, you don't believe that he's the son of God and that he is the words of eternal life. You can't. Therefore, people uh, uh, will, will perish if you deny his words here. There are people who wholeheartedly believe that they believe, but it doesn't line up with the way that Jesus says belief should work. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 are some of the scariest words in all the Bible. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, his will, his way. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? Then we cast out many demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
Jesus is defining here in Luke 9 what it really means to believe and come after him and to have him and to be found in him. He is giving us a glorious description and examples and illustrations and reasonings. He's reasoning with us here. He is giving us the inner working of how this all works for belief and and salvation so that you will choose him supremely, specifically willing to follow in his steps, especially especially in suffering that will come along with follow Jesus, as we've talked about, as 1 Peter 2 describes, as the Old Testament talks about, as the whole Bible talks about. And I really encourage you to go back and listen to this four-part message because Jesus is giving us the words here of eternal life. So now today, he goes on in verses 26 and 27. It reads, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So let's look at it. Verse 26, first of all, stay looking at the book with me. It's the only way to understand what I'm saying And I don't want to be the authority. I want the Bible to be the authority. So I don't just aim to show you what I've seen in seeing this text, but I aim to teach you how you too should see it, to teach you how to see it too. Once again, we begin with a conjunction, verse 26. It says, for, for, as you look in verse 26 at the word, Four, we see it starts with the conjunction. This is the third time that he's done this in the passage. Four, if we follow this connection link in following his flow of thought, it gives us incredible insight. Four connects us with the previous verse, which says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? And even the previous verse, since 25 is connected to verse 24, also by the word for. And so here he is going to give us incredible insight as to what he means. Here, the word for gives us this insight. This is one of the key ways I discovered the meaning of the verses that we are in today by meditating on and seeing the connection as described by the word for. Verse 26, the verses that we are in, by meditating on this word and its placement and its significance, it illuminates the meaning of today's verses. So this word, simple word, will help us discover the meaning of verse 26 by helping us to see its connection to the whole. And therefore, we will determine that he is essentially telling us today how salvation will work, the inner workings of it, which is... If you deny him, he will deny you. And so let's look at the flow starting in verse 23, actually. Let's all go all the way back up to the top, emphasizing the word for. Uh, and, and it's going to help us discover the meaning of verse 26. Ready? Verse 23. He's essentially saying, if you want him as the Christ, that is to come after him as God's Christ, who must suffer to accomplish salvation for sinners, if you believe in him as such, as Peter testified to, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him supremely, whatever the cost. That's belief. That's what he's saying in verse 23. For, look at verse 24. For, now here's the grounds for what he just said. This is what he's saying. Here's how it works. The essence of saving faith. The result, if you don't, whoever wills to preserve his earthly life, to avoid suffering, which will come along with coming after him, will lose his eternal life. So you better deny yourself and and follow me. Because if you repent from living for yourself and make him superior, you'll be saved. If not, this isn't true belief. So this is the grounds for coming after him in the way he described Originally, verse 25, for, and now here, he's reasoning with us. He's asking us a question as we consider following him. 
He, he's saying to not save your earthly life and lose, or to save your earthly life and to lose your eternal life, what would it profit you in the end? To gain the whole world, namely not suffering, and yet go to hell, there is no profit there. And so he's telling us, he's reasoning with us, think eternally as you're considering whether or not you want to save your life here on earth and forfeit your eternal life. That would be of no benefit to you. And then four, verse 26, here's our verse. He's saying, because this is how things are going to work. Let me just tell you why, if you save this life, you will lose your eternal life. Let me tell you why there will be no profit to you in the end if you gain this whole world and yet forfeit your soul. He's saying this is how things are working. This, this is how it's going to work. You can be sure of this. You should know this. This is why you should choose eternal life and me over this life. Because if you deny me, I will deny you. That's how this thing is going to work. And I'm going to explain this in its context of what he is meaning in the depth of this passage. But to say it another way, four helps us to see that he is saying this is why if you save your life, you will lose it. This is why if you gain the world, you will forfeit your soul. This is how it's going to work. Just so you know, if you deny me, I will have no choice but to deny you. That's what Jesus is saying. And so these are the words. These are his words, not my words. We are simply taking what comes next in this book. And in his description of what it really means to follow him, Jesus is saying, if you deny me, I will deny you for all of eternity. So four, and then he goes on. Look at the verse, verse 26, for whoever, whoever. Now he's used this repeatedly in the negative and the positive. Whoever, doesn't matter who you are, even in a negative way that this applies to you or in a positive way. Hey, anyone can receive forgiveness. In a negative and a positive, this isn't specially for you. It isn't a consequence because you are specifically or especially bad, but it also doesn't exempt you. Verse 23, he said, if anyone. Verse 24, he says, whoever, twice. And then here in verse 26, again, he says, whoever. This is how it will work for everyone. This is how it will work for all people. I think this is especially important for us to hear because in our American society, we figure out how to get what we want almost every time. We think we are unique in a way, special, and we get exceptions based upon certain factors, wealth, fame, popularity, looks, race, house, car, job. Surely I'll get what I want in the end. But he's leveling the ground here. There is no exception at all. None. This won't work differently for you. No matter how genuine you feel that God will make an exception for you, no matter how even how much piety that, that you feel or, or that he will have pity on you based upon some other merit than the son of God, this is the most loving thing I can tell you. You will not be exempt from this. This is his righteousness. And his justice and his way and his plan of salvation and his good news of his gospel. This is his love. I say this with, with love. I'm imploring you and Jesus is imploring you here. He's saying there is no other way. Whoever. And so Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will, all, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the same flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Or in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all 
are, are, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's a, a one category of people. And we will reap what we sow, all of us, and we will trust in Jesus for salvation or we won't. There's no differentiation, even for the ones who have all trusted in Christ. We are all the same on level ground in Christ. Whoever, Jesus goes on and he says this, whoever is ashamed of me, in my words. So for whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, verse 26, verse, the first verse that we're in, for whoever is ashamed of me, in my words. Now, here is the idea of denying him. If you are ashamed of him in his words, what does this mean? First, why does he use the word ashamed here? Because that would be a good question to ask. Well, he uses the word ashamed here because that would be the reaction of one who is trying to avoid suffering. The suffering that comes along with following Jesus thereby denying him in order to avoid suffering. It's a denial, a reluctance, an unwillingness, a rejection, a disassociation, a disassociating, a, a hiding, a never associating with it all because of the consequences that are associated with being connected to Jesus. Now, ashamedness here, it, it doesn't happen if one is totally isolated. A shamedness doesn't happen if one is totally isolated from others. Shame does, but a shamedness doesn't. A shamedness happens when one thinks about the reactions of others, the consequences from others. If others found out, if others see, if others knew, if others uncovered, because it deals with the guilt or humiliation or embarrassment or punishment by others. So this is, this first here, the, the use of a shamedness, this is inevitably tied to what Jesus said in verse 22 and really in the whole passage, which deals with suffering. In verse 22, he says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is inevitably tied to the fact that Christ will suffer at the hands of the crowds and at the hands of the leaders. This would be a reason why his these people might be ashamed to avoid suffering in the same way that he does. This is inevitably tied to Jesus's call in verse 23. If you believe in him and want him as the Christ, you will follow him even into suffering. It will, it will require you giving up your life and denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him because you're going to suffer. But if you want him supremely, you're going to endure that to have him because you believe in him. In John, Jesus says, where I'm going, you're going to go too. He says in John 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. He's going into suffering. The servant must go into suffering. The being ashamed avoids that, tries to avoid that by rejecting the association with Jesus. And therefore, you will have to deny your propensity to protect yourself from these people, from suffering. You're going to deny that urge and follow him. It's also tied to the idea of saving one's life, right? Being ashamed of saving one's life, verse 24, which means avoiding suffering, saving your life, avoiding suffering. Jesus must become superior. If you believe, he will be. And it's tied to gaining the whole world. Right? In verse 25, which means keeping your life and living for your life in this world. So he's continuing with the idea then that by using the word ashamed, what must happen to him and where his followers must go and what it will mean for them. He's keeping suffering in view here. That it's a normative thing, a normative reality for him and that will be the most normative reality for his followers. And... If one chooses to avoid suffering, to keep his life, to will to save his life, is ashamed of him, to gain the whole world, disassociates themselves 
with him to avoid the consequences of being connected to him, to gain the whole world by avoiding suffering. You don't believe and therefore you will be still in your sins and he will deny you because you chose to avoid suffering more than you chose to have him. And that means you don't believe. His work won't cover you then. Your faith won't connect you to his forgiveness. So ashamed here helps us to tie this whole section together. It's clarifying that the avoidance of suffering as opposed to being to following Jesus supremely as more important is still in view here. It's clarifying this. Ashamed in front of the crowds, ashamed in front of the leaders so that they won't hurt you, so that you won't have to suffer like him or be rejected like him or die like him. And therefore you won't be raised like him. He is saying the same thing in this whole passage in different ways. If you save your life and you save it by being ashamed of me, you'll lose it because it shows that you don't believe in him supremely as God's Christ, as the son of God and your need for forgiveness and desire him supremely. A shame here is tied to the unwillingness to endure suffering by the hands of men because you believe in Jesus. So you deny him or choose not to follow him to avoid possible consequences. Jesus has been saying this the whole time. Suffering is in view here. And if you choose to avoid suffering more than you choose him, you won't have eternal life. Now, Jesus goes on. Let me show you this and then give you some examples and tell you what Jesus is not saying. Verse 26, Jesus says here, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, for whoever's ashamed of me, the shame in this here is coming with being associated with Jesus of who he is. And there's reasons why we would be ashamed of Jesus and his words. First, Jesus's lowly posture and lowly plan. Now, this entails that he isn't the Messiah that everyone expected. Isaiah 53, one through three, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant. Like who's believed this message? Who, who is, has believed this lowly message? For he grew up, this Jesus, the son of God, the one who's to save us from our sins, grew up like a, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He is the one that everyone is rejecting. And therefore his followers will be rejected. His posture and his plan is lowly and servant-like. He is unwilling to go the way that everyone wants him to go. Therefore, if you're ashamed to radically devote yourself to him in the view of others, because he has, has seemed so lowly, then you don't believe and you won't have eternal life. But what's more is that there's an overlap here. Jesus also says in verse 26 of chapter nine, and my words, forever is ashamed of me and my words. His disciples here, the people around him might've been ashamed because he wasn't the Messiah that they expected and they might suffer the consequences if they follow him. But Jesus goes on here to say, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us because Jesus isn't physically here. So the visual association that they, they, they thought about doesn't come into play as it, for us as it did for them. But it overlaps because being ashamed of his words is still being ashamed of him and his ways and his claims and his life dominating, idol crushing requirement to follow him. 
but in his words. We're also ashamed of him because of Jesus's claim, number two, about his identity. Jesus's claim about his identity. That's why they were ashamed and why we might be tempted to be ashamed. He says here, he is the Christ in all of the scriptures. He is the Christ, the son of God. That's something that associating themselves with or ourselves with may result in Punishment, Matthew 26, 61 through 67. The man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. This is Jesus on trial. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that, this, that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have vowed, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. There's reason to be ashamed because of his claim to be the son of God of God's Christ, his identity to be God. How dare he say he is God over us? How dare he be the judge of whether our righteous acts are good enough to inherit eternal life? That's what the religious leaders are saying here and that's what our world says. So we are ashamed to associate ourselves with Jesus for fear of suffering in this way. Number three, there's reason to be ashamed because of Jesus's extreme and exclusive words about salvation. He tells of his way of salvation. That's something that they would be ashamed of because it comes, it would come with a consequence. In John chapter six, verses 22 through 71, I'm just going to read some of these. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were shamed because of his exclusive words about eternal life and salvation being through him. His words about salvation are what they may have been ashamed of. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me. This seems intolerant. This is something that we or they would be ashamed of. Number four, there's also Jesus' unpopular ways of godly living. Unpopular ways of godly living. Jesus is saying back in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me in my words. Why would they be ashamed? Well, Jesus' words are also very unpopular in the way that he describes what it means to live for God. Lastly, as we look at this, one may surely be ashamed of Obedience to his words, what it means to follow him, his ways that are clearly looked down upon by the world, by their world and by our world. Forgiveness, blessing your enemies, humility, love, purity, holiness, death to self, daily cross, giving up this life, giving away 10% and more, not living for the world's acceptance, Discipline, heterosexual marriages and romance, church discipline, husband and wife roles, 
which we call complementarianism rather than egalitarianism. Discipline and discipleship for children in the home, primarily by fathers as spiritual leaders, rather than leaving it up to the church or others. Dying to advance the gospel, evangelism, physical church attendance, church membership, discipleship, heaven, and the reality of hell, the inerrancy of scripture, the reality of false teachers, the disgust of the name of the name it and claim it gospel, the reality of false interpretations of scriptures by very successful churches, not gossiping, refraining from gossip, but appropriately approaching someone who has hurt you directly and then, and then offering them forgiveness seven times, 70 times, obeying your elders, church discipline, God-given genders, racism as a reality of the fall, glorifying God as the main purpose of everyday life, the truth about your heart and its sin, all hot buttons, all gets our attention, all his words and not mine. And the temptation is to be ashamed of all of them. Are you? You can find all of this in the scriptures as clear as day. There's no ambiguity with any of this. You could well say, well, some of these are Paul's words that, that he said, not Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is the word. The writers were inspired by him. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, is in, he was in the beginning with God and all things that were made through him and without him, not anything was made. These are all Jesus's words. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Knowing that first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are his words. And therefore we are ashamed of him if we're ashamed of his words. Here's an example of his upside down ways. Matthew 20, 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the son of God came not to serve, but to, or to be served, but to serve and get to give his life as a ransom for many. Or how he says it in another place. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last in the servant of all. That's upside down. I don't want to live like that. I don't have faith in his promises enough to obey that. Well, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 talks about his upside down ways. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus' ways are upside down. And so there is cause for maybe us to be ashamed because of the consequences that come along with this. So Jesus, back to Luke chapter 9, verse 26, Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Now, what does Jesus not mean here? Take a moment here, and then I'm going to give you a few examples. What Jesus does not mean here is that if you struggle or even fall short sometimes in a friend group or with your unbelieving family, if you go home and you are just so upset with yourself because you were ashamed of Jesus and you didn't speak up, you chickened out, in sharing the gospel, you acted as if you didn't know what the word said about a controversial topic. You bashfully silenced your voice and gave assent to the wrong opinions. Even in a moment, you denied being a, a Christian and you are just so ashamed of it. The factors here that he is saying here, the, 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 the idea that you have been ashamed of following Jesus is not the idea that Maybe we've struggled some in trying to work through and, and trust in God by faith. The factors that are important to consider are permanency and pattern and lack of immediate repentance 
and the lack of a fight for the adjustment for next time. In a foreign prison where Christianity is illegal and a gun is put to your child's head, will you deny Christ? And if you do, will you deny it another time? Will you repent? Or at an hors d'oeuvre party with progressive and popular people, white everything, walls, granite, couches, drapes, the setting of full wealth and important connections. Will you deny Christ? In a job, when it costs you everything to follow his words, will you be ashamed of him and his words? And if you fall short and just hate that you've shown this ashamedness, will you repent? What is the pattern of your life? What is the permanency of your denial? Will you trust him by faith as the son of God or have you choose, chosen your life to save your life above him? Here's a couple of examples that give us insight into the permanent picture that Jesus is painting here in Luke chapter nine. What about Judas? Well, Judas denied Jesus for his own gain and he refused to repent. And even in hanging himself, it was a refusal to receive Christ's forgiveness. Now it should be said here, Judas's example isn't a theology of suicide. Of course, we plead with you not to go there. It's not God's way. And I speak as one who has been touched by the effects of suicide multiple times. And there is nothing so bad that Jesus can't forgive and restore. Go to him, come to us, come to the Nehemiah Project. But we should be equipped in understanding this and especially how it relates to the ashamedness that we see as Jesus is describing, especially in our society, we must understand this. It doesn't mean that everyone who commits this sorrow-filled act isn't saved. And it isn't an unforgivable sin that causes one to lose their salvation if they truly had it, as most Catholic theology state. Struggling through this world, even in knowing Christ is real. But biblically, Christ's blood and belief in his name and receiving his forgiveness by the merit of his cross is what secures our eternal life permanently if salvation has occurred. We believe in, because the Bible shows it everywhere, in the gospel, the good news, what is called eternal security. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, 31 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, the only unpardonable sin is denial of Christ and his forgiveness for sin because faith in him and his atoning work is what is required for salvation. Matthew 12, 30 through 32. It describes this unpardonable sin. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is the sin of attributing to Satan what is actually accomplished by the power of God and doing so through flagrant, willful, persistent rejection of God. The sin committed only by unbelievers as deliberately and unchangeably rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit and calling them to salvation. Simply put, we see that this is even a momentary denial or word against Jesus Christ can be forgiven. But He's big enough and his grace is sufficient, but a rejection of the Holy Spirit's 
calling of one into salvation because that's what the Holy Spirit mainly does is affect salvation. John 16, seven through eight. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Essentially a rejection of Jesus and his testimonies and the Holy Spirit's saving work and call and testimony to, to bring one to salvation in Christ. This rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in this way is what will send you to hell, a permanent denial of Christ. The only question is whether there is a real repentance at faith at some point in Jesus Christ. Essentially, a rejection of the testimony and saving call of the Holy Spirit for salvation through Christ is what will send us to hell. Judas's great sin wasn't suicide, and it wasn't even a temporary abandoning or ashamedness of Christ. What damned him to hell, as the Bible speaks of him as being from the devil, was his permanent denial of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. No question, his persistent ashamedness with the religious leaders calloused his heart, leading to shame and guilt, which ultimately led to an ultimate refusal of Christ and an unbelief that Jesus could offer forgiveness still to him, leading to a permanent rejection. So be careful not to be comfortable with a temporary ashamedness. But Judas's sin here, in which he will be denied by Christ for all of eternity, is his permanent ashamedness of Jesus, his rejection of him. And this is what Jesus is describing here. On the contrary, we see another example. We see Peter. He denied Jesus three times. As Jesus said he would, Peter denied it. As we see in Matthew 26, Peter answered him, though they fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, if I, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same, but then Peter denies Jesus three times. He's ashamed. Luke 22, 54 through 62. Then they seized him and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him, with Jesus, looking at Peter. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. And how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus restores him though, three times, even after being ashamed, signifying he is forgiven for his denial. He does it three times on purpose as Peter repents, showing his true belief. And then Jesus sets him on, on mission. And so what we see here is that even in his ashamedness, he is forgiven because of his true belief and his repentance and his following. So Jesus isn't talking about a temporary ashamedness. He's saying, if you choose to save your life, the pattern of your life is to save it and to protect from suffering, you will lose it. Later on, again, Peter, he jumps in the water. He sits at the charcoal fire, the same charcoal fire that he denied him. And he looks at Jesus and he says, I love you. And Jesus asks him three times as to restore him in the same way. Verse 15 of John chapter 21, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this was to show what kind of death that Peter was to have in order to glorify God. Jesus restores Peter purposefully from his ashamedness and says, you will succeed in not denying me and you will not deny me. You will not be ashamed all the way to your death. You will succeed. So Peter denied him, but Peter repented, displaying his true faith in Christ. So we've seen Judas's permanent denial. We've seen Peter's failure and yet repentance. And lastly, we, we also look at Paul. He denied Jesus while he was unsaved, but as a Christian, here's what he says to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Paul's not. Even in the face of suffering, he's telling Timothy not to be. Nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering, which will be the result of not being ashamed, which is why Timothy might be tempted to be ashamed. You see the connection here between the shamedness and the protection from suffering and the unashamedness and the willingness to suffer. For the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to his holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, because he believes like Christ is saying in Luke nine, but I'm not ashamed. Look at this for I know whom I have believed. True belief will lead to not being ashamed. Again, that is what Jesus is saying in Luke nine. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul believes and therefore wants Christ more than the avoidance of suffering. He's not saving his life, he's losing it. He won't gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. He's denying himself, he's taking up his cross, he's following him. He's not ashamed of the son of God and his words. So he'll say later, even in Romans 1:16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to whoever believes. There are three examples and they should clarify that Christ, what he's saying in Luke nine and what he isn't, what a believer should look like ideally is no shame in this and permanently no shame in this. What he should look like even in a temporary failure, repentance, not perfection, direction. But what Christ is referring to in our passage is a perpetual denial of Christ as to save one's life and to avoid suffering. This is the direction of your life to go a different way than Jesus because you don't want the suffering. So back to Luke nine, he says in verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory in the glory of the father and of his holy angels. I thought our responsibility in this was the most important to explain for the sake of our eternities. So that's what I've done. And I'm just gonna briefly touch on the remaining. If one denies Christ, second half of verse 26, of him, that person will the son of man be ashamed. Christ, the Messiah, the son of God will be ashamed. If you reject him to save your life for suffering, from suffering, he will reject you. This is simply the consequential result which is why we spent so much time on the first part. Everything hangs on the first part. But he will reject you because you didn't believe in him. Receive him. His offer of forgiveness, his atoning work, his supremacy as evidenced by your denial in order to avoid suffering, his payment for your sins as the only way to satisfy God's just wrath for your sin and now you're getting what you want, which is an eternity apart from Christ. That's what you wanted by denying him. And you will get that. He has never known you, which is salvation. You won't be reconciled to God through Christ. Wanting to avoid suffering more than Christ is no evidence of belief, 
which is also why even wanting hell does not equal saving faith in, not wanting hell does not equal saving faith in Christ. Wanting to avoid suffering does not equate to believing in Christ now or in eternity. Verse 26, Jesus is speaking here of his second coming and the consummation of all things. And it's weighty and glorious when his fullness is made visible, his glory, that's his fullness, his greatness, his holiness is made visible. This person will not reside with God for all of eternity if they have been ashamed of him and chose to avoid suffering above him. It's shown that they don't believe. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels, because he indeed is the son of God and eternity will be blissful and the thought of it is weighty. It should cause sober minding uh, reality and resulting in a decision to follow Christ. Verse 26, he's saying, when the son of man comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels in his second coming, the permanency of the consummation of all of eternity, the one who has denied him and rejected him and have been ashamed of him permanently in a way to avoid suffering and have his life and gain the whole world. The son of man will also deny you because you didn't believe. In verse 27, as we just close this out, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Here, there, in, in verse 27, is perhaps the most debated passage in the Bible, one of them, at least. What does he mean here? But um, it, thankfully, we can, we can understand it, I think. Uh, what does he mean? Does he mean, but some of you here, thankfully, will believe and enter the kingdom of God before you die. That's one option and it, and it makes sense if you were to look at it like that. Um, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you, but thankfully you're gonna see the kingdom of God before you die. Does he mean some of you standing here will witness my cross, my suffering, which brings sinners into the kingdom and you will witness it before you die and you will see that it's true and you will not be ashamed and you will be forced not to be. You won't taste death. Tasting death is undoubtedly referring to dying physically. So that could be true as well. Or, which I think is right, does he mean here directly after speaking about his second coming and that he will reject those who are ashamed of him? There are some here, meaning Peter, James, and John, who I will verify this word to about my second coming, about my judgment, it is true that I will come in my glory and that I will reject those who reject me. And to know that what I'm speaking of is true regarding the second coming, some of you standing here will have it verified by seeing a glimpse of my glory now. You won't have to wait to see me in my glory until the kingdom comes in consummation. You will see it in this life briefly. And he is speaking of the transfiguration that is coming next, which attests to the truth of his words right now in all that he said about what it means to follow him. His transfiguration will attest to his glory and his eternal judgment and his second coming and the reality of all the words that he just said here. He knows he's in charge. He's the son of God. And this is what he will attest to. And he's going to show Peter, James, uh, he's going to show Peter, and John and James, what it looks like in his glory. And besides, the reason why I believe this is true and this is the real meaning is because the, the flow of thought here, which the conjunction uh, but, uh, we can talk about that at a later time. But now, as we see, even in the start of verse 28, it says now about eight days after saying these things. I think Luke does that very intentionally to connect us with what is said here. Jesus is fulfilling his words that he said in verse 27 in the transfiguration. So he's connecting us in verse 28 with the previous words of verse 27. He actually did what he said he was gonna do, show his glory in his transfiguration. And so this connection here shows us what Jesus is saying is that it's true. And I'm gonna show you even now my glory and that all my words are true. So to close, very simply, don't gain the world and the avoidance of suffering at the denial of Jesus. For you will lose your soul 
For if you're ashamed of him to avoid suffering, you don't believe. And he's gonna be ashamed of you. And you will not be with him for all of eternity when his glory is revealed, especially at the second coming, because he's coming. And it's true that he's coming and that he will judge as the transfiguration will clearly show his glory and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just to ask, even in all of these deep words that you have for us, that you would cause us to understand its reality. That if we believe we're gonna follow you, that we wouldn't be ashamed as evidence of lack of faith because you will deny us if we fail to trust in you, believe in you, follow you. And God, we know that that as we think about your coming and your eternity and the consummation of all things, we realize that we need to make a decision to follow you biblically because you will come as even you verified in the transfiguration in your glory that you will, you will come and you will be the judge. And so God, we know that you are the words, you have the words of eternal life. Let us follow them and follow you in the way you call. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.